0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to the Roy Green Show ad free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome,
1: welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast.
0: The leader of Monsieur, uh, Marchais, the Bloc Québécois, Monsieur Marché, is demanding that Trudeau is chief of staff. Katie tells us on the Bloc Québécois. Federal election when Parliament next meets. Charlie Angus joins us on the Roy show on the Corus Radio Network. Charlie, thank you for the time. And uh, Mr. Trudeau, of course, was not present uh, for the uh, Ethics Committee, and our presence were present for, for present Parliament. No, it's not very interesting uh,
1: we, the government part um, COVID and so other issues. The first time we had a Parliament sitting summer, so I don't know the Prime Minister had the all summer to, to go on vacation, but he went on vacation. The one day Parliament set. but um, I, I think he's probably feeling a little bit of heat right now. So uh, I'm not, am I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed he didn't show up. Uh, I'm not surprised.
0: What would the line of questioning have been if you'd had the opportunity to have him in front of you at the Ethics Committee in the last? Well, you know. Uh, not physically, but if he'd been virtually in front of you for the ethics committee, what would the questions have been that you would have asked him? Would it have been a continuation of what you asked of the finance committee?
1: Well, I, Roy, one of the reasons I pushed for this study uh, at the ethics committee, it's actually to look at the why we have no um, standards in place or no safeguards to keep the prime minister from getting himself into trouble on conflict of interest. And... You know, people sometimes think, well, conflict of interest, it's like bribery. You know, somebody gives you this, therefore you give them that, a political favor. But what we've seen with the WE charity issue is a much more complex situation where they really, the Kielbergers were really good at building this web of relationships. So they were so ingrained in the, with all the key liberal ministers and the Trudeau family and the Morneau family that when they were in need, uh, you know, for the prime minister, it seemed like the most normal thing that they would be the, 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 the chosen group to take this $900 million contract. But I would have asked Justin Trudeau about the very first finding of guilt, the one that Mary Dawson found him guilty of, which is the Aga Khan trip. Because in that case, it wasn't the Prime Minister asking for a trip to Billionaire Island. It wasn't the Aga Khan saying, come to Billionaire Island and we'll discuss the $15 million we want. It was the relationship between Sophie Gregoire and the Aga Khan's daughter. It was the Aga Khan's daughter who invited Sophie to come to the island. And then Sophie liked being on the island so much that she phoned and said, hey, can we come at Christmas time?" It was the family relationship that put the Prime Minister in conflict. And just to finish this long rant, Roy... Under the Conflict of Interest Act, I think it's section five. It says that a public office holder has to put their private affairs in order in order not to get caught in this situation. And this is the question I would have asked the Prime Minister: How is it possible that you weren't aware that after you got elected, they were hiring and, and they started to hire your mother and brother and pay them, and while of course taking Trudeau and senior cabinet ministers uh, uh, and putting them on stage at these wee events?
0: Yeah. I mean, perfectly logical question, necessary question, question that shouldn't be too hard to answer for the prime minister, but instead he takes vacation time. Uh, Global News reporting uh, today, Charlie, about your letter to the federal lobbying commissioner asking that she investigate WE Charity as a federal lobbying entity and whether they engaged in improper lobbying. And in the letter you stated, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the more uh, we, that's all of us, and you, uh, member of parliament, ethics can be member, the more we learn about we's government activities, the more concerning it became. What are those concerns?
1: Well, Roy, one of the reasons we have the Lobbying Act is so there's transparency. Um, and the vast majority of people who engage in lobbying, you know, we have charities that engage, and, and sometimes it's meeting members of parliament about, say, getting defibrillators at hockey rinks. Um all those people who meet with government officials are very careful to register under the Lobbying Act uh, so that there's transparency. So I was gobsmacked when I learned that the Kielberger, Kielberger Group had not bothered to register. And they had a bunch of strange reasons why not. One said, uh, Craig said their latest line as well, because my brother and I are volunteers. Uh, since we're just volunteers like everyone else, we don't register to lobby well come on they got a real estate empire out of this that doesn't hold up but there was a multitude of meetings particularly uh, once they started to go into economic freefall and without being on the lobbying register we didn't know about key meetings like the April 17th meeting with Minister Bartish Chagger, um, that I think was one of the pivotal moments for getting this $900 million contract so it seems to me that if they have a government relations director and they were hiring a government relations manager that sounds to me like they're doing a lot of government relations work, which is lobbying. So um, whether or not they were involved in illegal lobbying, I think it's a really important question to ask because we're trying to get to the bottom of how they got their hands in this nine hundred million dollar deal in the middle of a pandemic, and that money didn't go elsewhere
0: yeah and And over the past five years, we received we charities received millions of dollars in government contracts with little no or no record, as I understand it of contact with government officials and correct me if i'm wrong but are there not also sixty five retroactive communications reports by we charity and if that's correct what does that suggest
1: well it was fascinating that they proactively decided to become you know good the good corporate citizens and announced that they were you know for the good of all doing the right you know registering to lobby not that they had to but they just wanted to show they're, you know doing the right thing here well they do that on the same day that the parliamentary committees called their former government relations person to testify. So they had to. And we find, wow, they had a whole whack of meetings. And I think a number of these meetings are really, really key. From turning the prime minister's announcement on April 8th, the prime minister came forward and said, You know, we understand university students are facing serious crisis. There's no work for them this summer. They're worried about student debt. We understand there's a lot of small businesses that would like to hire students. We're going to come up with a plan. So that's April 8th. Then April 22nd, suddenly he announced this whole volunteer scheme that is completely at odds with what he said he was going to come forward with. So what happened in those two weeks? Well, in those two weeks, there was a series of high-level discussions between the Kielbergers, Morneau's office, Minister Ning, uh, Minister Chagger, that set up what became a handwritten proposal by the Kielbergers became a government project. That shouldn't be able to happen, uh, not without a lot of scrutiny, and that's why I think people are so upset about how this deal went down.
0: Mr. Angus has stayed with us on the Chorus Radio Network, and we we're also speaking with Charlie about the letter he sent to the Federal Lobbying Commissioner asking that she investigate We Charity as a federal lobbying entity. Charlie, is there any argument to be made here, that the lobbying commissioner should have begun an investigation some time ago and without prompting?
1: Um, I would have assumed that the lobbying commissioner would have been all over this. We, you know, Madame is the new lobbying commissioner, the previous lobbying commissioner, uh, Karen Shepard was an extraordinary public official. She uh, took no guff from anybody. Um, and uh, I haven't really heard from uh, Commissioner Belanger at all on this because I know at the beginning of this, the Conservatives asked for an investigation. So I thought, well, I'll wait and see, but we haven't heard anything yet from her. So I, I think it's, I, I understand that, um uh, you know these commissioners don't want to seem like they're jumping to when politicians call, but these are serious, serious issues. And this issue of how the Kielbergers set up their relations with government and were so deeply embedded, it needs a, an investigation. And I'm really hoping that the commissioner uh, is going to be there for that because she's that's her
0: job. If she doesn't, what are your options? As a member of the ethics committee, what's the op- what? What are the options the opposition has? Because there's no way that the liberals could, as they did when they had a majority government, and when it came to Jody Wilson-Raybould and uh, the concerns about how she was manipulated and bullied by the uh, by the PMO. There's no way they can make this go away with five to four votes because they don't have a majority government. So, what are the options the opposition has to press this forward if the lobbying commissioner doesn't do it?
1: Well, we are going to certainly uh, work uh, at the Ethics Committee on the issue of the lobbying and how the lobbying was done. That's something I think we really need to get to the bottom of. It's it's slightly a different uh, tack than where the Finance Committee is going, but it, it really is within the ballywick of ethics, which is about accountability, about lobbying. Uh, I, I think it's this is going to be, to me, a real fundamental test case in how we Start to deal with lobbying. For example, Minister Qualtro, who I have enormous respect for, and she testified at our committee the other day. And you know, it's not a great thing to have to come forward and explain how something this bad went down. Uh, but she said, "Listen, I'm sorry. Like, this this went off the rails, and yeah, it it, it stinks. Uh, you know, I can take that, um, as opposed to Minister Chagger, who I can't seem to get a straight answer out of. But what was fascinating was that Minister Qualtro talked about how amazing it was that she'd been invited to speak at We, and she went with her daughters and how emotional it was, and she talked about, I don't know, being ostracized as a kid and the affirmation of speaking to young people. And, I mean, I think Minister Qualtroughs is great, but come on, Roy. They didn't invite her because of her inspirational story. They invited her because she's a cabinet minister. Yeah. The same with they invited Minister Chagger. They built this set of relationships so that when they were... In freefall when they were needing help, Minister Quattro probably didn't even think uh, about the fact that she had already had this close relationship with the Keelburgers. Were really embedded with the government, so it's it is a way that they've been lobbying that hasn't probably you know is it a is it a loophole? Is it something that we haven't uh, you know dealt dealt with something like this quite like this in the past? We need to investigate it and figure out what are the rules and how are we going to make sure that. You know, charities in that can work with government and have politicians come out and participate, but, but they're not, it's not that insidious relationship that appears to be what's developed with the We
2: Crew.
0: Well, when I heard uh, Carla Quantro claim that the government, uh, I think the quote was, dropped the ball on the We Charity contract situation and argued the pandemic caused matters to be pushed through at breakneck speed, I said to myself, please. Really, anybody who's going to spend five seconds thinking about what you just said is going to have all sorts of questions based on that statement. Um, You know, it took me right back to the timeline issue.
1: Yes, well, Roy, that's the the key thing that, uh, you know, I said to Minister Qualtro, you know, how in God's name did you guys think, that we needed a, a, a national volunteer program that could actually be put together in the middle of a pandemic when what we were hearing from students was like, we're, we're facing an economic collapse here. If we don't have work in the fall, we don't know where we're, what we're going to do, what are we going to do with student debt? And she agreed and she said, yeah, this is what we were hearing. And I said, okay, so that's what we heard on April 8th. And April 22nd, suddenly we got something completely different, something that seems to fit the Kielberger plan precisely. And in that time, what's fascinating is that Mr. Qualtro who's the minister of the SDC, she gets moved out of that portal. She's still the minister, but she doesn't handle the file. It's Bartish Chagger, And Bardas Chagger has this meeting on April 17th that she doesn't tell the finance committee about. The Kielbergers don't tell anybody about that meeting. And that's the meeting, I think, that begins this switcheroo that happens. So timeline is really important, and finding out, you know, how these relationships in these meetings went down. I'm, I think at our ethics uh, committee, Roy, we're going to be focusing a lot more on what happened in those meetings, who was there, and what kind of information was given to the Kielbergers so they could create this second proposal that became this Canada Student Service Grant idea. And,
0: and, and Charlie, the WE Charity is now registering as a lobbyist, but they're also simultaneously laying off more employees.
1: Yes, well, uh, you know, Roy, what became apparent the very first uh, sets of hearings we had, and we had the former chair of WE, and she was, a, Michelle Douglas is a very, very credible public um, figure. They were in an economic freefall because I think COVID, they may have been overstretched. They'd missed a couple of their bank payments. They have this massive real estate investments, which nobody seems to figure out why. Uh, and COVID hit, and their whole business model is these huge rallies. So they were laying off hundreds. Um, then they fired their board of directors because the board of directors were demanding access to the financials to know why they yeah. were taking such drastic action, so we don 't have answers
0: talking about day. red flags
1: those are red flags yeah and we don 't like if if your if your board of directors of a charity are being told they 're being let go because they want to know. How the money's being spent? Uh, <laughs> yeah. I would have thought government would have looked into that before yeah. signing the deal, but they didn't. Yeah. Uh, Charlie, so.
0: I, I, I always appreciate you coming on the show. I yeah. think you've been—I uh, think you've been amazing on this on this file, both on the finance committee and on the ethics uh, committee in Parliament. You're doing terrific work. You have the right questions, and uh, I know you're making certain people feel uncomfortable, which is your job. Mr. Bryan told us about a court case the CCLA has going forward in Newfoundland and Labrador, and, yeah, he expressed his concerns. Rocco Galati is the lawyer for Vaccine Choice Canada, and uh, he is uh, handling the the court case um, before the uh, Ontario Superior Court. Mr. Galati joins us on the Roy Green Show. Mr. Galati, thank you very much for the time. Um, why, why, don't I, why don't I ask you to just in in a minute or two share with us what the court case is about in layman's terminology what is what are you doing
3: okay thanks roy and you can call me rocco uh, uh, all right rocco thanks uh the case essentially boils down to this it's a it's a challenge to the measures put in and we say that and we have 43 world experts including nobel prize winners who say that uh, who say that the the measures are uncalled for and extreme, that there is no scientific or medical basis for the measures. That's number one. Number two, that Trudeau and Ford have inflicted the most vicious constitutional uh, violation of them all, that is, they've dis- effectively dispensed with Parliament under what we call the, the pretense of royal prerogative, and that the measures uh, essentially breach sections two, seven, eight, nine, and 15 of the Charter, without getting overly technical what your listeners need to know and i laugh when i hear about negative and positive testing five requests to health canada and all the federal departments that deal with viruses they have not anywhere in the world yet roy isolated this virus what's that mean without isolating a virus you cannot develop a vaccine without isolating a virus you don't really know what you're testing for the test for COVID started with diagnosis of symptoms and then were extended to people associated with those people who were tested positive. What the positive tests show are merely DNA fragments from different sludge and crap in your system, including last year's coronavirus vaccine. So if you had a a coronavirus vaccine last year, you will test positive on their test. They have not. See, I, you, you can, I have
0: to, Rocco, I, Rocco, I have to say to you, I, 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 don't know enough about what the ins and outs on the particulars are. So I'm, I'm going with what you're saying, and I'm, I'm not going to challenge you on it because I can't. Right. I don't know enough about it.
3: Right. Okay. Um, so, and, and so now here's, here's what's happening at the end of the, what I ask people to do is, people aren't virologists or doctors or lawyers. I ask people to apply their common sense, Roy, and ask themselves this. Going back to March when this happened, up until now, do, do the political and policy decisions made by our governments following the ever-wavering and flip-flopping uh, World Health Organization make common sense to you? For instance, every ma and pa uh, business, from hardware store to shoe store to clothing store had to close down, yet Walmart got to sell everything under the sun because they were selling a bit of food in the corner. Is it easier to socially distance in a mom-and-pop shop or a crowded Walmart in a crowded mall? For the first four months, we were packed in, as, like sardines in the Toronto subway system, no social distancing and no masks. All of a sudden, everybody's masked like a chihuahua on a leash. And it goes on and on and on. Theresa Tam now tells us here's the peaks and here's the peaks and valleys of this COVID for the next three years. How the hell can she predict that?
0: Okay, and so are important. you are you make, Rocco? Are you making a legal case here now, or are you expressing your personal views? Because I think no, no, I, no, I, no, I, gather, really, I gather I gather from your a, Twitter it, account you personally feel very strongly about this as well.
3: Statement of claim. What's also pleaded in our statement of claim that is that by almost a factor of 10 to 1 more people have died from the covid measures than purportedly died from the covid even though they they've agreed that the the, tabu, the health officials have agreed that the tabulated attributed covid deaths have been have been overestimated by between 53 and 64% depending on the jurisdiction but to a factor of 10 to 1 they can to 170,000 Surgeries. Forty percent more people died during COVID of heart attacks in Canada than in no, the was previous Yeah, I'm very concerned
0: about that. that great on and on, about and, and on and on and on. I am. Yeah. No. These, I don't. These I don't measures... disagree. And I talk. I talked to patients who had their surgeries put off, and I talk to doctors who are concerned about that. On, on this program, we did that. Rocco, it's not just about COVID-19 vaccine. This is. This is across the board. Vaccines, according to Vaccine Choice Canada, should not be mandatory. Period.
3: Right. Listen. Uh, there are eight plaintiffs in my in the lawsuit i filed one of them is the world's masking expert who's a professor in ottawa canadian who wrote an article uh, he reviewed the entire world medical literature on masking and in april said masks don't work here's the bottom line from all my clients you want to wear a mask go ahead you want to take a vaccine god bless you those who do not want to take medical treatment without informed consent have a constitutional right let me be clear roy our court of appeal for ontario and the supreme court of canada said that you cannot under any circumstance be forced to take any treatment that you do not willingly consent to except in one rare instance of a minor child who gets wheeled into emergency and without treatment would die the parents because the child under our constitution has separate independent rights cannot make the decision to let that child die because the, the, the child has independent constitutional rights. So in that limited case, if a child is bleeding to death, they're going to die. The doctors can, notwithstanding the parents' wishes, say, no, we're going to save the child. In every other context, and this right does not accrue from the Charter of Rights. It's embedded in, it's been interpreted to be included in the Charter of Rights. It comes out of 700 years of common law arising from habeas corpus, which protects your bodily and psychological integrity. So I'm I'm really confused. If you believe that masks protects you, if you believe that vaccine protects you, then why are you worried about me not having one?
0: Well, are, the counter argument there would be, as you well know, that if you don't have the vaccine, then you run the risk of, or you you you, you may very well spread it around, and that's whom? what they're trying to. Well,
3: you Rocco, I'm just telling you, I'm just I'm, just I'm just telling you
0: what the argument is.
3: I know, and the argument is this. You can only spread it around to other people who have chosen not to take the vaccine.
0: Okay, let me ask you this. So the cases before the courts is the idea here to preclude government from making vaccine mandatory. Is that the fundamentals of the case?
3: No, no. The fundamentals of the case go much beyond the issue of vaccination. Vaccination, mandatory vaccination, is one, uh, just one of the things it attacks. It attacks. Okay. The other measures, for instance, in New Zealand now, we got soldiers and police knocking on your door, and if you test positive, and there's a family of four, and the only positive is a seven-year-old, they take that seven-year-old and put him in a quarantine camp. Is that what Canadians want? That's where we're going.
0: So I I just need to know from you, what is the lawsuit? What is the suit ultimately demanding? What do you want a judge to decide?
3: Well, uh, we want a judge to say that with respect to masking, mandatory vaccination, and the closure of business, that the government cannot make these irrational, arbitrary decisions. And they have to be rational. So that if a person chooses not to wear a mask, it's their constitutional right. And it is. If a person chooses not to be vaccinated for anything, it's their right. And that's the state of the law right now. And if a small clothing store chooses to stay open while Walmart can stay open, well, then they should be able to stay open.
0: (laughs) Yeah, there was a uh, major concerns about, about those arbitrary decisions that were made. And really, that's well, what I spoke with sense? Michael Bryan about last weekend from the CCLA. And Mr. Bryant has concerns that once governments make a decision to enact emergency legislation or bylaws that supersede constitutional uh, rights and charter, de- tr- charter rights, then it's going to be easier for a government to do it again.
3: Not only again, Michael's quite right. And go further past the Nuremberg Code. Don't forget that after World War II, after the experiences of Nazi Germany with medical experimentation, the Nuremberg Code was enacted, which is part, is read into Section 7 of the Canadian Charter of Rights, that you cannot ever do any medical treatment without consent for that reason. It's a slippery slope.
0: Yeah, so tell us again, please, because I'm going to go to our callers in a minute, and I thank you for joining us. But tell us again, please, just as briefly as possible, what is it that you want the court to say?
3: We want the court to say that the measures that are invoked uh, should be voluntary and not compulsory because they've done too much damage. And we proved in our statement of claim that there are a lot more deaths as a result of the COVID measures than they feared from the COVID itself. Which okay, so, means to me, we're dealing in the land of lunacy.
0: And your concern is, your concern you want to is, stop governments. You want you want to stop governments from taking that step where they declare it mandatory. The uh, Business Council of Canada represents the larger business organizations in this country, but they also have an excellent working relationship with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, the small businesses, and Dan Kelly's organization. Uh, Goldie Heider is the president and CEO of the Business Council of Canada, and the council yesterday released its pre-federal budget consultation submission. I'll go back to that line that caught my attention, Mr. Heider. Thank you very much for the time. The the line that caught my attention immediately was, the full scale of the challenge facing us, Canada, is staggering. So I look at that line from your submission, pre-budget submission yesterday, and then I see that also last year, I don't have to go far back, to see that the business council expressed serious concerns about the viability of Canada's economic uh, economy rather, prior to the emergence of the of the pandemic, and you sent a warning letter to the Prime Minister and federal politicians. So if you look back to twenty nineteen and the concerns you had then and you compare that with the concerns you have today, where are we?
2: Well, Roy, thanks for having me back. Look, uh, not to be alarmist about this, but the fact is our economy, uh, thanks to COVID, effectively went into cardiac arrest. Uh, governments moved quickly to stabilize the patient. You know, they, they, they put them on life support, the ventilator, they hooked up the IV to feed the patient and all and now the time's coming to kind of remove some of those uh, uh those uh, support systems in terms of the programs in particular so while i'm optimistic about the direction of the economy we're quite concerned that once you remove the sus and the CERB and some of these other things we're going to find out just what collateral damage the patient suffered. Like how are the, how is the liver? How's the lungs? How's the arteries here? Um, we don't know. And so when we talk about the damage being so staggering, part of it is not knowing just how staggering because it's artificially propped up with the support programs that were you know, necessary and and uh, but but they can not also continue endlessly and so the goal now is how do we live with covid how do we build the confidence um to allow the economy to restart i think the measurement that uh, provincially provincial governments are taking on schools uh and public transportation is going to be very key. I know that the federal government and others continue to work very hard on the testing, tracking, tracing. Uh we know they're gonna be flare ups, Roy, and I think it's really important that the media do its part and not overhype the, the flare ups and ensure that people feel that look um, we can manage uh the road ahead. Because one thing's clear. Uh, if you're worried about the well-being of that patient I just described, um, it would be right back into life support if we had to do a second uh, shutdown. We can't have that happen.
0: Yeah. I, I spoke with E. Giroux not long ago, the Parliamentary Budget Officer, and he said, uh, we can do this once. Yeah, we cannot there's no do question it again.
2: No about it. Um, and, and, and the reason for that is this. I mean, you look at the pressures that government face, and as I said, they should be you know, credited for the speed with which they move to kind of put a floor below the collapse of individuals. But the fact is now that there are, you know, demands from all side coming of governments. You know, we've we've read recently about, you know, from the federal's perspective, ambitious plans on the social issues of, you know, considering massive EI reform, you know, potentially looking at some kind of, you know, universal basic income on all of these things. We've got to remember that we've already created a little over $300 billion deficit. Uh, and, and, Which and is I staggering. Know, it, well, we just, we've just we got to remember that we've got to pay that back one day, and I think that before we get a little too uh, gung-ho on all the spending that's possible, we've got to remember that we've got to grow the economy back so that we can invest in those social programs. It doesn't work the other way around.
0: Uh, in part, you write in the pre-budget submission, the profound impact of COVID-19 is not just felt domestically but on a global scale, and this is something we have to keep in mind as well. Mm -hmm. You're right, the geopolitical ramifications, how nation states will come to redefine their economic and political interests in a world where structural forces are making them revert to protectionism and self-preservation will be very consequential. What's the advice to the the federal government as far as that's concerned?
2: Well, you know, we have to live in the world that is, uh, not in the world that was, or the world that we necessarily want. And the fact is, is that Fundamentally, things have changed um, as a result of COVID. They've been exacerbated and accelerated. We're seeing it in our U.S. politics where, you know, the battle uh, lines have been drawn with China, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. Um, You know, we have seen the actions that the the, um, U.S. government has taken on aluminum, you know, uh, absurd. That's the only word that comes to mind uh, when it actually ends up penalizing uh, the very Americans that they're supposed to be, you know, supporting. Uh, This behavior is probably par for course as we go forward, and we shouldn't get too far far ahead of ourselves and thinking that we're going to return to normal. We need to operate in an eyes wide open way and put our national interest and, and, and put in place plans that allow us to control our own destiny. You know, we've got, Fundamental challenges. Uh, Roy referred to the things we wrote before. We've got low productivity that hasn't gone away. We're not getting any younger. Uh, you know, we've gotten uh, very you know poor results in building trade enabling infrastructure. We've got the ongoing interprovincial trade barriers. We've got low business investment. We've got to improve the regulator. Major challenges for us.
0: And we don't know what's going to happen in the United States with the election. Is it going to be Donald Trump? Is it going to be Joe Biden? And what would either of those eventualities mean to us?
2: It it may not matter. And I think that's part of the message here is we're getting a little bit excited at the idea that just maybe there's some kind of regime change. The fact is there's a lot of um, people in the Democratic Party who would continue some of the policies uh, in some of these areas that would be detrimental to Canada.
0: Well, uh, we have a long road ahead of us. And we better be able to identify it and work within, as you say, the parameters as they are, not as the way we might like them to be. How much of a disappointment was it to you that the prime minister was not uh, willing to sit for questions?
4: Look, uh, it's a minimum expectation that the prime minister is going to show up for work. Uh, The uh, official opposition had uh, called on uh, all parties to agree to have parliament sit in a modified format, respecting uh, public health guidelines for the summer. You know, we, we've heard time and time again that we're in unprecedented times. Um, obviously, we were unsuccessful in uh, in convincing the uh, the majority of members of the House that this was necessary at the time. And uh, the Prime Minister picked four days when the House would uh, members of the House would meet in a special format. It's not a uh, it's not the regular a uh, session of the House of Commons. And uh, the Prime Minister uh, chose not to show up and. I you know he he calls the he calls the shots to his to his favor when he wants to avoid accountability just like the finance committee called on him to testify for 3 hours he only stuck around for 90 minutes the ethics yeah. committee has called on him to testify he refuses to respond
0: it's galling isn't it that the prime minister of Canada would make the decision and it's so transparent would make the decision to take time off when the ethics committee is investigating his ethical behavior when he's already been convicted twice of violations of the conflict of interest and ethics act you'd think that the man would want to stand before you virtually and answer questions and clear up the situation not head off on a four-day vacation somewhere and leave you with nobody to ask questions to well not the prime minister anyway
4: right yeah somewhere somewhere indeed earlier this summer it feels like a lifetime ago i was asking questions of the government about a uh, a secret mansion that they were having built for the prime minister uh, well the secret's out they are in fact building it it's been confirmed by documents so he was getting a second summer residence built at taxpayer expense at harrington lake and so the uh, the existing cottage now the the new mansion uh don't suit his taste so he he really had to get out of dodge uh for this week and it uh it, it's it's unbelievable that um, having twice been found guilty of of breaking this law that he's you know he's up to bat again uh doesn't really you know he said well it's unprecedented times and i pushed back hard and um every time we hear a a a government official speak on this they testify we learn new information and it's always um and and it only further casts the government in a light uh where, where canadians are seeing that they are not open by default like they promised they would be when they first ran for government and uh, they very much shield themselves from what the prime minister described as the best disinfectant and that sunlight, and so it, it's uh, it's very concerning. Yeah. Uh, we we hit roadblocks um, each way that we turn, but we're using all the tools in the toolbox. We are using independent officers of parliament, like the lobbying commissioner, like the conflict of interest and ethics commissioner, and parliamentary committees to get answers for Canadians.
0: You don't hear that sunny waste thing very much anymore, for yeah, some for reason. Sure. For some reason, uh, Mr. Barrett, you mentioned documents and uh, in, in relation to the mansion and the accommodations for the Prime Minister of Canada. But there's a larger document. Uh, uh, people use the word document dump. I don't like that. Um, but the availability of a significantly large trove of documents. Uh, t- that's going to be made available some already have what are you expecting what's coming your way and then by extension to the to the rest of us in canada what are we expecting to find out or what possibly could we find out
4: well that's, it's a great question the committee ordered those documents to be produced by uh, by one week ago today and then they're uh, then the law clerk takes possession of them and uh, applies redactions to them uh, for various considerations including privacy and so of course, when uh, it, when the documents are, are redacted over the course of a week, and I understand there are a few thousand pages, so it would take some time. Um, it raises concerns, and so we'll have to take a look at them and see first of all what's been removed, and if we think there's pertinent information that's been redacted, we'll have to um, order them unredacted. But uh, it's 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 tough to say. We were the is very tangled, and we heard beyond uh, when the Kielbergers testified that. You know they they shrugged it off. Uh, It was laughable that they would be registered. Anyone from their uh, their organization would be registered as lobbyists and didn't do any lobbying activity. And this week, registered a bunch of lobbyists and dozens and dozens of lobbying activities with uh, with and uh, more than an organization, General Motors. That these guys are they didn't hire lobbyists, they are lobbyists and. Uh, and so the story turned. You know, uh, Finance Minister Bill Morneau was to appear committee. No, nope. couldn't tell Canadians. And the day he passed, uh, actually, I took forty thousand in, uh, dollars in in a gift. Yeah,
0: uh, Mr. Barrett, we're having a lot of trouble with your with your phone signal at the moment. Were you standing somewhere else when we, when you first started talking to me? I will, uh, Because it was it was fine when we first started to talk. In the last minute or so, it started to get really wonky
4: uh how are we now
0: that sounds much better okay so, so 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 let's go back to to where we are uh, and where we where we need to be i spoke with mr angus about the fact that he wrote a letter to the lobbying commissioner demanding to find out or asking her to find out to investigate we charity is a federal lobbying entity and they say they're not um even though they're now, now they're registering as or they may have over the last couple of days registered as a lobbying entity you too wrote a letter did you not do, do i have that correctly to the lobbying commissioner Right back uh, on the
4: seventeenth of July, I, uh, Pierre Polyev and I wrote the lobbying commissioner on the seventeenth of July, and we uh, we wanted uh, um, the commissioner to take a look at multiple uh, possible contraventions of the Act. And we have since heard back from the commissioner uh, acknowledging the letter. She's unable to, uh, by law, to advise if she is investigating, um, but uh, but the but her her office um, does have the ability to. Um, not just look into the the uh, the situation the details that we read but can continue to investigate uh, based on what's in what's in uh, the media and what she hears at committee so um, I, I would expect more in the future from from the commissioner in response to that
0: letter all right actually that sounded better mr. Barrett thank you for the time we will ask you back thanks
4: okay thanks so much
0: Michael Barrett conservative member of parliament member of the ethics committee realistically How effective uh, a vaccine or series of vaccines might be available for mass inoculation, say, in the next 12 to 18 months? Because everybody's sitting anticipating the word. And then we heard from Russia a few days ago, hey, we have one and the president's daughter's been inoculated.
5: Well, a little bit to unpack there, Roy. I mean, a a few things. One, it's not that technically complicated to make a COVID-19 vaccine. At least I don't think it will be. We're, we've developed one also that we announced this week. We're scaling up production in India. They have the capacity to produce a billion doses. Uh, we're developing a low-cost global health COVID-19 vaccine. The reason I say it's not that technically complicated is an old-school problem in virology. We need to induce lots of uh, neutralizing antibodies against part of the virus known as the spike protein and and also some T cell immune responses and we know we can do this. So I'm quite optimistic we'll have multiple COVID-19 vaccines next year. The the part about the Russians that I explain to people is, you know, it's not again, not that scientifically an amazing accomplishment even though they call it Sputnik or Sputnik 5 something along those lines. It's nothing near the intellectual accomplishment of Sputnik um this was a stunt uh, more or less uh, it's not that technically complicated to make a covid-19 vaccine the, the complicated part is ensuring the quality control the quality assurance and and giving it adequate time for testing in tens of thousands of people showing it actually works and that it's safe uh even if even if you've already shown that in animals and so what the russians have done is They've circumvented the most important steps, the most important parts to to get it out there, and um, and it, it, that's why I call it a stunt. It was it was an act born out of weakness, not strength. You
0: you, you talked about the uh, the agreement that you have. Baylor College of Health signed an agreement with a firm in India to produce a vaccine. What can you tell us about this particular model? And is this something because you have a lot of experience dealing with? Uh, with with the uh, virus uh coronaviruses and I, you told us some time ago that you were close to a virus that had a development been completed would have been effective against covid-19 more than likely but the funding dried out so how quickly do you expect something to come out of this effort with india
5: yeah what happened was we had developed um we've been developing coronavirus vaccines for the last decade and we had developed one for SARS that we we're pretty excited about, but we can never get the 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 original SARS, the one that affected Toronto back in 2003, if you remember. Um, and then we never could get the funding to move it into clinical trials. And we were thinking maybe we could repurpose that SARS vaccine for this new virus, SARS-2, but then things moved so quickly, we were able to accelerate a similar vaccine that was specific for SARS-2 And that's the technology that we transferred to uh, India uh, and we're scaling up production for. And and maybe even the possibility we could do something along the same lines for Canada as well, because I'm worried about Canada's access for some of the vaccines uh, done through the U.S. and Operation Warp Speed. I'm worried Canada may not have complete access, so maybe we could be helpful uh, on on that front as well. So I think you're you're going to see... Uh, after 2021 is the the release of multiple uh, vaccines for COVID-19. And the reason we're doing that is because there are several different potential approaches to make an immune response against the spike protein and several different technologies. That's why you're hearing about mRNA vaccines and DNA vaccines and adenovirus vector vaccines and recombinant protein vaccines. They're all pretty much uh, trying to achieve the same goal, develop an immune response against the spike protein. What we don't know yet is which are which are going to be the best at inducing protective immunity and which are going to be the safest.
0: What do you say, uh, Dr. Hotez, to express concerns, and they're numerous, about vaccines causing illness, including autism? And there's a lot of pushback from people who say, I don't want to be vaccinated. I certainly don't want a program nationally that's going to be mandatory. I don't believe in vaccines. What's the what's the what do you say to that?
5: So this is part of a 20-year process known as the anti-vaccine movement that started in England, and then the Americans expanded it like only we can, and now it's unfortunately spilled over into Canada as well. And it's built on a lot of fake news. It's built on on the false idea that vaccines cause autism or other chronic illnesses and now it's being expanded in this COVID-19 era in part because you know the anti-vaccine people claim vaccines are rushed and not adequately tested for safety uh and other things and unfortunately the way the the messaging has come out around COVID-19 vaccines has played into that uh the bottom line is um uh one, vaccines do not cause autism. I have a daughter with autism, as you mentioned, and wrote a book with a straightforward title a few years back called Vaccines Did Not Cause Rachel's Autism. Uh but also the fact that even, you know, even though we call it Operation Warp Speed, in fact it's being the the warp speed part is not the clinical trials. It's it's the man it's manufacturing before we know whether the vaccines actually work and uh and recognizing that we'll throw them away if they don't. And and also the fact that we're trying multiple shots on gold to get as many different technologies out there. So the vaccines are safe, but unfortunately it is is folding into that anti-vaccine movement.
0: Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to the Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green.